We continue the story with John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18, also at page 88 of the New Testament section of your pew Bibles. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and sisters and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. We celebrate the written word of scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A million years ago in 1984, everybody was reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persick. A dear friend told me it was his favorite book, I should read it, and it would change my life. I did. It didn't. And I don't remember much about it. But I was reminded this week that Persig introduced the Buddhist Buddhist concept of mu, M-U, which means unask. If someone asks a question that limits the way that you can look at things or that can only produce an unhelpful answer, you can answer mu, which says there may be a better question. The celebration of the resurrection tends to raise the kind of questions that make me want to answer moo. Did resurrection really happen? Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you need to believe in a literal bodily resurrection in order to be a good Christian or in order to be any kind of a Christian? At the risk of sounding like the Easter cow instead of the Easter bunny, Moo, moo, moo. (laughs) People have obsessed about these questions for centuries. A cynical 18th century German historian wrote, the disciples discovered that there was a better living to be made preaching than fishing. Therefore, when Jesus died, they invented the story of his resurrection to keep themselves in their new, more lucrative line of business. What the good professor forgot to mention was that this lucrative line of business wasn't very lucrative. And not, not only that, but it was far more dangerous than fishing. Most of them died as a result of it. 
If the professor were right, you'd think that maybe at that last moment, just before the Romans sent the lions into the arena, the disciples might have said something like, okay, okay, it isn't true, we just made it all up. They did not say this. Still, you don't need to cook up a story about more lucrative work in order to have reason to doubt the resurrection. Even the four Gospels tell the story four different ways. How many women went to the tomb? One, two, or three? How many angels? Did the disciples meet Jesus in Galilee or in Jerusalem or both? All of which is glorious affirmation that neither the precise facts about the resurrection nor the truth it reveals depends on what you or I believe. Easter isn't like the musical Peter Pan, where the audience is asked to clap if they believe in fairies in order to save Tinkerbell's life. We don't change anything by our belief or our unbelief, or apparently by telling the story with conflicting details. But there's another more important reason I won't ask you to clap if you believe in the resurrection. Author Frederick Beekner pointed out, that even if somebody had been there with a television camera and taken a picture of Jesus walking out of the tomb, what would, be, what would that be except, for many people, an interesting historical fact, just as it's interesting to know that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492? But what difference does it make to me? So what if a Jew in the year 30 AD was brought back from the dead? In other words, what's important is not so much what happened in the half-light of daybreak on that day in 30 AD, but what happens now. What matters is not what happened on Easter Sunday, but what happens in my life. Is there any sense that, for you or for me, Jesus exists, or the power that was in Jesus, the power that led people to see him as kind of transparency to holiness itself, to the mystery itself? If that is alive, that's all that matters. And what happened on that day is of little consequence except in a minor historical way. We tell this enigmatic story with conflicting details today, not because today is the anniversary of something that happened 2,000 years ago. Easter is not over. It is ongoing. John's Easter story communicates this in a handful of ways. It's Sunday morning, so early it's still dark. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb where she knows the body of the crucified Jesus was laid to rest on Friday. She sees the tomb is empty and concludes the obvious. Someone has stolen the body. She runs to tell Peter and the other disciple, and they run to the tomb to confirm what Mary has told them. The unnamed disciple believes, but we aren't told what he believes. The disciples don't yet understand the scripture in any event, and they turn around and head home. Mary remains there, weeping. She sees a man she thinks is the gardener. He calls her by name, and something illogical, something impossible happens. The one who was certified dead 
greets her. Stunned, she can only say, Rabuni, something like teacher. She reaches for him. A tearful hug is in order, right? But Jesus says, do not hold on to me, or do not cling to me. Now, this seems harsh, but rather than a rebuke, try imagining it as a teaching moment. Mary, you can't cling to Rabuni, to what I was on Friday. You can't hold on to what is dead and gone. Jesus refers to your father and my father, your God and my God. He's describing a new horizontal relationship, a new union with God that means new life. The point of Easter is not to believe something about the past, but to awaken to the gift of new life here. God is making us new here and now. What does new life look like? To the disciples, it looked like an uprising of hope. I imagine their conversation. Do you realize what this means, one of them says? Jesus was right after all. Everything he stood for has been vindicated. Not only that, but we never have to fear death again. And if that's true, we never need to fear Caesar again. That means we can stand tall and speak the truth, just like Jesus did. We can see this awakening realization in all the post-resurrection accounts. Everything has changed. It's not just that Jesus was resurrected. It felt as though they'd arisen too. They'd been in a tomb of defeat and despair, but they were truly alive again and a force to be reckoned with but a force for hope, not hate. An uprising armed with love, not weapons. An uprising that shouts joyful promise of life and peace, not angry threats of hostility and death. An uprising of outstretched hands, not clenched fists. New is for us as well, but it doesn't always look perfect. Like the Easter story itself, new is often messy. New looks like recovering alcoholics. New looks like reconciliation between family members who don't actually deserve it. Nadia Boltz-Weber writes, New looks like every time I manage to admit I was wrong and every time I manage not to mention I was right. New looks like every fresh start and every act of forgiveness and every moment of letting go of what we thought we couldn't live without and then somehow living without it anyway. New is the thing we never saw coming, never even hoped for, but ends up being what we needed all along. You may have heard of the friendship between Derek Black and Matthew Stevenson. Derek Black was raised to be a white nationalist. His godfather is David Duke, and his father still manages one of the first internet hate websites. When Derek went to college, word got around. Fellow student Matthew Stevenson saw others on campus trying to make Derek's life as miserable as possible. Matthew hosted a Shabbat dinner every Friday evening in his dorm room. That's the meal and celebration that begins the Jewish Sabbath. 
Matthew figured Derek probably didn't know anybody from a background that his ideology despised. So he decided to invite Derek to a Shabbat dinner. Derek accepted. The two young men became friends, legitimate friends, says Matthew. And for two years, Derek continued to host a white nationalist radio show while attending the Shabbat dinner every Friday night. Two years of coming to dinner, says Matthew, without any indication that Derek had changed. The conversations at dinner were not about white nationalism. Matthew told his friends that Shabbat dinner was not ambush Derek time. He didn't want to put Derek on the defensive. Krista Tippett, who interviewed the young men, noted, we forget in this country that no one has ever changed because someone else told them how stupid they are. <laughs> Derek was prepared for Matthew and his friends to grill him. He had solid facts, or what he believed were solid facts anyway, to support his beliefs. He was more uncomfortable to find himself enjoying the company of people he wasn't supposed to enjoy. Eventually, he had to come to grips with the fact that his ideology was anti-Semitic. Over time, he says, piece after piece after piece was removed. He was friends with Jews and people of color, and he recognized he had nothing legitimate to support his ideology that it was, in fact, hateful. New life. For his part, Matthew risked being seen as approving of Derek's ideology by inviting him to dinner. Some people stopped coming to those Shabbat dinners. But Matthew believes that no one forfeits a right to human dignity for his or her beliefs. And in the end, both Matthew and Derek were transformed by empathy. Derek says he really didn't think he was doing anything bad to the people outside his group, but he didn't empathize with them. He could not take their perspective. Now, you may have noticed that this resurrection story isn't about Christians. Matthew, of course, is Jewish. Derek is an atheist. The God who is love, the God who so loved the whole world, as John's Gospel put it, does not limit new life to people who can recite the Apostles' Creed without crossing their fingers. Do not cling to me, said Jesus. God is free. God can't be held down. And in fact, God is on the loose and new includes recognizing the ways we may have persuaded ourselves that God can be controlled by our own rules and religious practices, our own do's and don'ts, our own list of insiders and outsiders. John's first witness to the resurrection was a woman. It's hard for us now to appreciate how radical that is, but it affirms everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry to cross barriers and include outsiders. So not only can we no longer think of God as Protestant or Catholic or white, black, or brown, we can no longer think God is more like nice middle-class folk 
or imagine that God prefers Christians to Muslims or vice versa. Noon means waking up to the fact that God is not on our side any more than God is on their side. Easter, new life, is God's ongoing work. It is not just once a year, and it is not in and about the church. The church is the fellowship of Easter people. In the 4th century, Augustine summed up the Christian faith in these words, We are an Easter people, and Alleluia is our song. When Jesus sent Mary to go tell the disciples, in the Greek it says, Continue to tell them. Her never-ending mission, and ours, is to share her Easter experience and the things that Jesus taught, to share that Alleluia. So while we don't corner the market on new life, we are the people who look for and celebrate and point to the signs of resurrection, signs that, as Desmond Tutu put it, that goodness is stronger than evil, love is stronger than hate, light is stronger than darkness, life is stronger than death. When we gather together, we begin to rise again, to believe again, to hope again, to live again. Scott Clark reminded me this morning that the prayer of St. Patrick begins with the affirmation, I rise today with a mighty strength. That is what we do as Easter people. We rise today with a mighty strength the power of the resurrection in our one whole life. Because Easter is not over. It is ongoing. We proclaim, we do not proclaim today, Christ was risen. We proclaim, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen and hallelujah.